0: Welcome to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch, of Northeast Law Group in Massachusetts. On today's podcast is Carla Sanchez Adams, a managing attorney with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. She's also a board member of NACA, the National Association of Consumer Advocates. I found the interview with Carla to be remarkably impactful, and I hope you do as well. I've had the honor of witnessing Carla present on topics relating to the Fair Credit Reporting Act and poverty, but was not familiar with her background. Growing up on the Mexican side of the United States border, Carla had an intimate, life-shaping view of the impact poverty can impose on all areas of a person's life. From early on, she knew she wanted to use the opportunities of good fortune that she received to help the impoverished. After leaving the Southwest for college, Carla returned to Texas with a mission to become a lawyer and to use the power of the law to improve the lives of others. Carla's role as a lawyer often walks the line from advocate to social worker. We discuss Carla's background, the challenges of public service law, and how consumer rights law differs when there are issues of domestic abuse and immigration concerns added to the picture. On a personal note, this interview really offered a reminder of why the work we do as consumer rights attorneys is so important. The work can be emotionally taxing, and particularly as a solo practitioner, there's power knowing that there is a community of like-minded attorneys working daily to expand access to justice and to level the playing field. I hope you enjoy the interview, and if you do, please share it with a friend. Leave a review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast, which will help other people find the podcast and to make sure that you receive every episode as soon as they're published. Without further ado, here's the interview. Carla, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you are our first guest who is uh, really strictly from the nonprofit world of lawyering. And so I'm, I'm very excited to learn what it's like working for a legal aid society and to learn more about your practice and interactions with clients. Great. So you are uh, in Austin, Texas, right? That's correct. And which organization are you with?
1: I work for Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid
0: Incorporated. And you've been there for quite some time. I was looking over, you know, all the information that you sent, but it's been almost a decade now. Yes, that's right. Um, so, out the bat, I mean, did you did you know that you wanted to work for a legal aid type association out of school?
1: Out of school, law school, or undergrad?
0: Well, we could roll it back um, from undergrad. Did you, I mean, when when did you decide that you wanted to be an attorney? Let's start there.
1: Yeah. So um, I actually would love to tell you kind of the story because I think it's it probably would relate to a lot of people um, and kind of their background and wrestling with what should I do with my life. Um, So, as background, I grew up in Matamoros, which is in Mexico, and it's the border with Brownsville, Texas. Um, I lived on the Mexican side, but went to school on the U.S. side. Um, And the reason that's important is because the economic reality of the two countries and the two cities was very different. Um, And so, in Matamoros, um, I had the the fortune to uh, be born to a family um, of privilege and um, and so it was very, very easy to see in the city um, where there was um, wealth and that includes middle class um, and upper class and where there was not wealth Um, and it was kind of a pretty big divide Um, and so I often would ask myself, you know, how how was it that I got to be born in this family and was able to have these things and, you know, these people were not and so... We'd be walking in the plaza in the center of the city as a little girl, and I would ask my mommy, you know, why don't they have dolls, or why don't they have, you know, bows for their hair, things like that, that is your grid for understanding (laughs) what material possessions are important as a three-year-old girl, Um, and so it was something that I kind of was from the get-go felt a responsibility to give back because I had been given. Um, And so this issue of poverty and of, you know, um, just kind of economic injustice was at the heart of, of, you know, in the forefront of my mind. Um, and so in high school I mean when I was asked um, you know I kind of knew that I wanted to do something in justice so whether that was um, be a lawyer, be a judge, be a politician something I wanted to kind of address these economic injustices and so that um, took shape in, in very different ways um, you know I in undergrad, I studied economics and um, politics. It wasn't political science, it was politics. Um, so I went to NYU and studied that. And really, just in NYU being such an international city, um, and just, I'm sorry, New York City being an international city, um, and NYU being a campus that actually had a lot of international students, um, I felt I wanted to move into the area of international human rights. Um so I took some time off from, from law uh, from law school to, sorry, undergrad to law school and, um, you know, worked on a campaign, uh, political campaign in Matamoros, um, worked as a paralegal for a law firm being like, is this what I want to do? Is this the kind of work I want to do? Um, and did a couple of other things um, to, I mean, th- to be frank, I, I-, I went to seminary because I was wondering whether I should do missions kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was kind of figuring out what was this gonna look like and how was it gonna work and um you know decided was trying to figure out should I study law in Mexico or in the US and um decided that um unfortunately our kind of judicial system in Mexico is not the best and so that it would be much more effective um here in the US and so um decided, you know, after kind of putting it off for three years, applying and then um, basically rejecting it or applying accepting and then being like nope i'll defer to next year <laughs> finally decided to go um and um went to ut here in austin and while here i kind of wanted to explore so how can i do this work in the context of american law um, i studied abroad in brazil and like one all year i i worked um, for an ngo in canada um, that did humanitarian work and went to, to brazil and worked in some of the the Favelas, which are slums over there. So I decided to kind of study law over there and see what I could do. And it became very clear to me that there's no such thing as international human rights law practice in the U.S. (laughs) um, You know, we have these treaties that we sign and ratify, but our constitution, of course, is um, the ultimate say. And so if I wanted to do this kind of work, it was going to look like what we call poverty law. Um, it was going to look like working for a nonprofit public interest kind of thing. Um, and so I did several clinics while in law school as well. I also worked for our state legislature. Um, yeah, so I took several clinics in the law school, and um, and it really wasn't until I, um, you know, graduated, accepted a job working with legal aid. You know, I was like, well, there's so many areas within a legal services provider and an organization, there's so many areas of law that touch upon poverty and touch upon helping the disadvantage. So, you know, there's anything from doing housing, um, eviction, defense, mortgage, foreclosure, defense work um, for family law, domestic violence, sexual assault work, uh, you know, civil rights and kind of institutional barrier challenges and, you know, to to whether it's in immigration or in criminal justice reform or, um, you know, kind of other, uh, like, employment law or discrimination. There's just so broad. Um, We have so many specialized teams at our organization. And so um, while studying for our bar exam, um, I had accepted to work here at at, at Trala, Um, did not know what area of law I was going to do, Mm so I was actually hired, just as a general hire, not for a particular project or grant, so I had a little bit more freedom. So studying for the bar, and um, while studying for the bar, it was the first time I was introduced to any type of consumer law. Um, so there's, uh, in Texas, it's, our bar exam is three days, and the last day is Texas-specific law, their essays. And so one of those covers consumer law. And so it is the FDCPA, which is the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act, yeah. the state law equivalent of that, and then um, the DTPA, which is our UDAP, or Unfair Deceptive um, Acts and Practices mm-hmm. um, State Statute. And so while reading these, I was like, this is fantastic. There are ways to get at financial institutions and, um, you know, wrongdoers that are really affecting the poor. And we can get attorney's fees, meaning that I can give money back to our organization as well um, and help us be kind of some way sustainable. Um, So I just got really excited about it. And and decided when I started at uh, our legal service organization that I wanted to do consumer law. Um, So I ended up doing consumer law as well as family law to get myself in court and get some practice. But um, that's kind of how I decided to do what I do in particular um, within the broad framework of... Legal
0: services oh, that's amazing there's so much to unpack uh, thank you for walking me through that that trajectory uh, I mean where you started is incredible uh, now have you do you still have family on the other side of the border
1: yeah so I have um, aunts and uncles um, that are and cousins that are on the other side um, a lot of our family has moved to the US side there I mean the violence got pretty bad in the early 2000s. Um, and so those that could uh, move to the U.S. side, uh, and others are still uh, on the Mexican side.
0: When, um, when you started at Legal Aid, uh, I'm, I'm curious, I know you came in as a general practitioner. How is the organization set up? I mean, are most people uh, end up finding you know, a, a niche in a particular practice area?
1: So our organization is set up by specialty. So uh, most people, when they get hired, you know, it's looking for a family lawyer in this office or, um, you know, for housing or employment or human trafficking or immigration or, you know, just basically because of our funding, we will get specific funding um, that we need to fill a position for. Um, Then there's some folks that started our office that are EJW, which is Equal Justice Works Fellows, and they come in with already an idea of what they want to do. So they pitch to EJW kind of this is what I want to do, and here's an organization that will um, sponsor me. And so EJW actually provides the funding for that fellow. It's a two-year-long fellowship. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it can be anything from working on the intersection of like Rent-to-own housing, and um, you know, and discrimination in um, you know Hispanic populations, or it could be something that is uh, focused on um, LGBTQ issues within um, you know, and Title IX within universities, something like that. So it's something more specialized, and they work within the umbrella of a team um, that it pertains to the area of law it pertains to. But we are, so, I mean, we're broken down by teams and then by kind of groups. So we have economic justice, individual rights, um, you know, immigration. So it's just, it's pretty broad and and pretty, you know, uh, particularized, which is different than some more traditional legal aids that is, you basically do a little bit of whatever so you know if you're in a rural office and someone comes through the door like you just do whatever that person needs um and so we have rural and urban offices and so that means that um and because we are broken out by team it means that i in austin can take a case that is five to six hours away by mm-hmm. driving, um, because there's no attorney in that office that does that work, but I do, and so all Got my it. clients are from all over our service area.
0: It seems like a, a much broader practice than most legal services in in other uh, legal aid, you know, services in other states as well. Are, are you, um, are, are you guys? I, I realize it's a nonprofit, but is it is it uh, independent or is it state funded?
1: So we are an LSC, which is a legal services corporation funded. There are three LSC legal aids in Texas. We're the largest in Texas, and we are the second largest in the country. Um, but we also have funding from our state, um, the Texas Access to Justice Foundation through other federal grants like the DOJ um, and uh, like either Violence Against Women's Act or VOCA, mm-hmm. which is Victims of Crime Act. Like we have a lot of different funding um, sources. And so we, we, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, it's a long way to answer your question, but um, we, we are LSC-funded. There are some legal aid organizations that are not, so they don't have the same restrictions that we do. Okay. Um, so, yeah.
0: And you have offices uh, throughout the state? We do. That's great. And um, so, understanding that the, you know, the goal is to expand uh, access to justice, to the impoverished, and obviously your goal at the beginning going into the practice of law was to really make a difference in uh, poverty, uh, or at least I- I impacting people who are in poverty. Um, what is the barrier to entry for representation in terms of, you know, where where is that floor for where we define what poverty means in terms of your clients?
1: Yeah, I mean, so... I think it's a challenging and kind of academic question of how is poverty defined. Um, For our purposes, we obviously, because we are LLC-funded, we have to screen for eligibility, um, and that is income eligibility, as well as some other um, kinds of eligibility. And that is defined by the federal poverty rate, right? Okay. So there's certain grants that allow us to go up to 200% of the poverty rate. There's others that it has to be within, like, 125%. And it's based on household income and household family members. So it varies. You know, if you're an individual who makes, like, $20,000, um, even though that seems, like, very little, you could actually not qualify for our services because you make too much money. Um, so... It, you know, if you're a family that has you know, five, obviously the income that you can have is more because there are more family members. Um, and it doesn't take into account, unfortunately, the differences between urban and um, rural. Right? right. So like someone who's living off of um, $30,000 in a place like Brownsville, Texas, can live very well, but not in Austin, Texas. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way that it
0: works. Sure. And I know that you are doing both, um, you know, the the consumer rights area as well as family law. Are you still practicing in family law?
1: So um, I'll answer your question in a roundabout way, which is um, I am not doing family law in the sense like the traditional sense. I don't practice family law anymore. Uh But our clients um, for the team that I manage Um, Which is the Survivor Centered Economic Advocacy Team. Mm -hmm. We serve populations that are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, and other kinds of um, violent crimes. And a lot of them have family law crossover. So Mm -hmm. they either are currently being represented by us, by our organization, in a family law proceeding, um, or have been, um, you know, have some kind of family law issue that is affecting their economic and consumer rights issue Um, and so there's still the interplay of family law with what I do. Uh, So the the knowledge of it and its impact is important for the work.
0: It's interesting. So okay, so uh, can you say one more time what the name of the division that you manage is?
1: Survivor-Centered Economic Advocacy.
0: And so, the people that come to you that fit into that rubric—that you know—is there a triage place that they're going to, and then they get sent? Somebody decides, uh, Carla, this person fits into your group, and then you guys meet with them and deal with what the vast array of issues are that they may be facing. How does it work?
1: So we have—we um, are also kind of novel in this way, where we have um, MOUs with sixty. Shelters, I think, um, or in and when I say shelters, I say you know either domestic violence or rape crisis shelters or both. Um, so there are partners and they do, they actually do intake on site. Um, their advocates do intake and we will, they, they get sent to us. So um, most of the time, their, their issues are family law related, but they also have a lot of other issues um, relating to their problems, which can be the economic issues um, that, you know, we do or, um, and then that's kind of pretty broad, right? It could be like housing related, credit reporting, debt collection, um, mortgage foreclosure issues, some of that. But then sometimes they have like they're at a rape crisis shelter because it's employment law related or they were also trafficked and have immigration issues. So they're just a broad range of issues and whatever they self-identify mm-hmm. to that advocate, they, they will do an intake for us. We have people that call from our hotlines. Um as well, or from our paralegals that do in-person intakes, and it is very rare that in some of those cases they will self-identify that some of their um, economic or consumer-related issues um, have stemmed from some form of violence, so usually it will go, it'll get screened and it'll go to, like, our general consumer law team, Um, and then during the course of of finding out more information or gathering information, it will come out that there was from our screening questions or just our lawyers doing some more work it'll come out that it's related to the violence and so we'll either work in tandem or take over Um, sometimes it's from our family law practitioners that are representing someone and these issues come up and so then they refer uh, them to us and we open up a new case and and help on that issue Um, so it's just kind of a a variety of sources of where our clients come from
0: It seems to me that you face an awful lot of challenges in your job, particularly because of how at risk a lot of your clients are. Um, how do you deal with you know, managing that stress and, and not necessarily taking <laughs> it on yourself? Because look, for any lawyer, I mean, being a lawyer can be stressful. I think particularly if you're in litigation as opposed to transactional law, it's a little more stressful, um, but Especially when you're, the, you know, the, the stories that you must hear and the experiences that you're seeing, really, I mean, what strategies have you developed uh, to help cope with that and manage it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a million dollar question. You could have your own pod- podcast on just this issue um, because, of course, our immigration team faces this every day with the current landscape. Um, our family law. Team is living in this, and they're also constantly in litigation as well. So it's like divorces, custody battles, and everything pertaining with domestic violence, sexual assault, um, and so. And then, of course, we also have our client stories that we hear in the work that my team does. Um, and so there is such a thing as secondary trauma or compassion fatigue that you know we are definitely at risk of and often are experiencing. Um, and so. There are some great resources and some great books on like dealing with, um, with secondary trauma and things like that. But I think it's an individualistic uh, response because you know for some people, I mean, it's all about like quote unquote self care, right? So um, that work life balance, not taking it home with you, um, and so for some people that looks like meditating. For some people like me, it could be prayer um, or you know refocus on spending time with your family or uh, being involved someone else it's like being involved with we have a one of our lawyers who's on a roller derby team mm-hmm. and so it's just you know it's finding a way to uh, sometimes I bake um, and that's how I just kind of lose myself in something else uh, so it just it, it depends and on the individual and kind of knowing what helps you recharge and what helps you get refocused and what's the most important thing in your life at the end of the day um, you know because I think there's that kind of what we do in the marketplace and that kind of corporate impact that we want to make but of course and there's your individual life and the people that you actually know and have relationship with and so if you're married and have children you know there's the importance of those relationships and not bringing home. I mean, it is a challenge of not right. bringing home your work with you, not giving your family your leftovers because you're spent from from the work that you do. You're just done, you know. And so you come home and you're like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to do anything. Um, and so there's a component of just guarding against that. And um, you know, and some there's some seasons I think where you handle it better than others um, because there are challenges. Like you said, it's just not, it's not just hearing our client stories. It's not just going to court, but it's also unfortunately the regulatory landscape. So when there's Mm -hmm. new changes to law and things that used to work that no longer work, (laughs) you know, like that can also be discouraging and disheartening. And so um, some of the best advice that I got from a friend was, you know, this is not a a sprint. It's a marathon. So pace yourself. Um, And that you know, that's kind of proven to be true time and time again.
0: I think that's always good advice. Um, you know, I, I've seen you lecture on a couple of other topics at conferences from the National Consumer Law Center and National Association of Consumer Advocates. And I've, I've seen you talk about uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and also the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, and it, I will encourage anyone who ever gets to go to any of these conferences, if Carla is presenting, go see it. It's worth it. Um, What I want to ask is, you know, are there other statutes that you also work with beyond those two, or are those really the primary core of your practice?
1: So first, thank you for that really kind um, uh, compliment. Um, Yeah, there are other statutes because with this kind of area of law, it's a little bit of a – kind of toolbox what kind of novel approach sometimes you have to take because one law doesn't clearly fit or you may be out of luck because of a statute of limitations issue or a definition issue or something so we do use our state statutes as well um, so both a combination of federal and state um, and so with our state statutes it's the equivalent of debt collection like I said earlier our Deceptive Trade Practices Act statute um, our Sometimes I just do a declaratory judgment um, type of suit. We have an identity theft statute as well that we can use. Um, our finance code, I mean, it's it's pretty broad because it's really like the gamut of consumer law within this, you know, the Texas property code sometimes. So it just depends on what the legal issue is and, um, you know, what potential remedies there may be for that situation. So it is hard to get people to do this work because there is such a stiff learning curve at the beginning. I mean, there are so many laws and it's alphabet suit, so many statutes that are FDCPA, FCRA, uh, FCBA, TILA. (laughs) It's just like, wait, what? So, um, so it is, it's, it's, yes, we use multiple laws to answer your question, and it can be, can be challenging for new lawyers.
0: And one of the one of the things I certainly don't know the answer to, you know, the the way I know how in private practice I assess whether I'm going to take a case and I have control over whether or not I'm going to, you know, take a case and and develop a relationship with a client. Um, How much say do you have in terms of uh, if somebody meets the guidelines, you know, what's the next step in determining are we going to have a representation relationship?
1: So we do, I mean, I have a lot of um, latitude as the team manager to set our priorities um, for what types of cases I recommend our team members to take. Uh, And so it's, in some ways, it's similar to to how private attorneys um, do the reasoning and rationale of is the defendant viable, right? So that's the same thing I ask too. If the defendant's not viable, let's say it's a payday lender that's a fly-by-night payday lender that... Um, you know, we sue and they're gone tomorrow, or a used car dealership, same thing, that they're going to pick up and move shop, and you're never going to get any money on the judgment, um, or in cases where the opponent, they want to sue the opponent being the, the abuser, and the abuser is insolvent, um, you know, it's not worth the time and resources and energy that our office will spend um, when mm-hmm. we could be helping somebody else. Um, so that's one determination, right? Is the viable similar second is, um, you know, obviously is there an actual remedy? Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's the same with the private practice, right? So there's this huge issue, this huge problem, but there may not be a remedy. Um, so what is the remedy? Um, is it going to put them back in, you know, and how, how, is it going to put them back in as good of position as they could have been or will be? And you know, like, what's the what's the damages kind of question issue? I, I, we go through that as well. Is it something that's like. A couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand or more like and of course it's going to be different than the private bar like it won't be hundreds of thousands of dollars but you know for someone like who is in our client population just getting two to three thousand dollars may make the difference of keeping their house or their car or i mean being it's a huge deal to them whereas for some other people it's like that's not a big deal um so it's just it's kind of a situational in that in that sense but um, obviously, we prioritize cases, too, where it's like, if fixing this will allow them to get housing, will allow them to get a job, like to be economically stable, because that is the goal is to get them in a position of economic security, mm-hmm. then that, we want to prioritize that, right? So, um, you know someone to be homeless we don't want that we want someone to be able to live in a house and keep their kids and do those things so that is definitely a consideration of prioritizing you know someone who let's say they want a couple hundred dollars versus someone who needs to get housing and needs to not lose like their section 8 voucher or something like that so um, you know those are also some considerations and of course another thing that we um, look into and think about is are they from a particularly vulnerable population
0: mm-hmm. or is it
1: an area of law that is unsettled and that we could form good case law in? Um, you know, there's, there's some of those considerations as well. Is this something that is a repeated practice that we're seeing a lot? So a bad actor, like the defendant is someone that we're routine, routinely seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to address that. So yeah, those are some considerations. Um,
0: it's actually quite similar. I mean, it, look, that it, you hit it in the first point, right? I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than getting a judgment against someone, and all it is is a piece of paper with a monetary value. You can never do anything with it. Um, you know, that's that's certainly one of the first things that I think most private practitioners look into as well. Yeah, and we do, so
1: that, I mean, the kind of nice or frustrating thing, depending on Perspective is that every person that applies for a service, even if we don't represent them, we have to at least give them advice. Mm -hmm. So, some of them we can actually help draft pro se um, documents for, can, if you know, with a little bit of hand holding, they can do um, some advocacy they can advocate for themselves um, to can do some advocacy and so um, you know there's that's another kind of priority of let's say someone we have a lot of Spanish speaking only or LEPs or some that are disabled or elderly. So if you have two side by side clients that almost are exactly the same, but one is much more vulnerable and the other one can with a little bit of hand holding do it themselves, that's that also shifts um, who we prioritize and the type of case that we can take. Um,
0: So, yeah. My recollection, excuse me. My recollection from uh, hearing you speak at conferences is that oftentimes uh, your legal aid will also co-counsel with private practitioners. Can you talk a little bit about how those relationships develop?
1: Yeah. So we, in the past, I personally have co-counseled. Let me think. With two or three. No, that's not true. With two or three attorneys. Um, and um, maybe a handful of cases, and currently I'm um, potentially co-counseling with a, two other private attorneys. Um, and so I, I think it, it was something that I did earlier on in my career because there wasn't a lot of experience within our organization in that particular area of law. Um, or, um, And so having outside counsel who had a reputation and experience and I could learn from and our client would benefit from um, that was super valuable. Um, it de- in other areas of law, it depends on, um, you know, sometimes it's private co-counsel, sometimes it's co-counseling with other nonprofit organizations, um, you know, on, on kind of bigger lawsuits. And so it just kind of depends on, um, you know, what the outcome is that we're desiring and whether or not, in some cases, if we, because we are LSC-funded, we first have to, on any case that we can get attorney's fees, we first have to get two private attorney turndowns. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it happens a lot in our cases that are in um, rural areas um, because there aren't practitioners there who do this kind of work. And a lot of the practitioners from the big cities don't want to have to drive down there. Um, or practice in front of those judges. And so um, we do have the possibility of, for that reason, um, you know, taking those cases. And then sometimes private attorneys will co-counsel just for that reason because they'll have a local counsel in that rural area. Um, And then we have the reputation being in front of that judge. And so sometimes it's also good for a private attorney to do that with us because they're interested in the case, they want to take it, but they'd rather take it if somebody in trial is working on it. Um, so it goes both ways you know sometimes they benefit and a lot of times we benefit because of that like I said that expertise that they bring
0: yeah absolutely Um, and and I would imagine that there's also uh, is there an appellate practice you know does your organization get involved writing you know uh, supporting amicus papers and things like that at all
1: we do appellate work Um, we have filed some briefs in the past um, but it's not it again, it's, it's one of those considerations that it depends on how many other people are also filing briefs on the issue. So if mm-hmm. we've got an ACLU or, um, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center, someone who's also writing briefs and there's not much we're going to add, we won't do it. We'll sure. do briefs where, like, nobody's supporting, like, it directly affects our clients. We have something to say that hasn't been said. Um, you know, in those cases, there are briefs that are filed.
0: Um, do you have any advice for... Uh, any other attorneys out there, whether, you know, I, maybe it's separately tailored for those in, in, in private practice. I suppose I should tailor it this way. Do you have advice for anyone in private practice who uh, does the consumer work and really has an urge to, you know, take on more of that poverty mission that you started out with, um, but they don't want to go to the nonprofit sector for one reason or another? I mean, do you have any advice for, for that kind of person who wants to be mission driven?
1: I think that there's so many great opportunities. Like, in some ways, you don't even have to resort to pro bono because you can make money off of these cases. But um, but partnering and reaching out to your local nonprofits, um, whether it is your legal aid organizations or whether it is potentially those DV rape crisis shelters um, or homeless shelters or, um, you know, sometimes it, there are organizations that are set up for, like, you know, like foundation communities that help with housing, there are so many different types of organizations that are in your community that probably have potential clients, and so and are doing the work of trying to combat some of these challenges that those that are impoverished face. And so, if there's any chance that you can help and put money in their pocket somehow, um, you know, I think that that is really beneficial, and you would feel good as well because. You're helping the
0: cause,
1: so um, so yes. I would just say know your community and try to build partnerships and rapport and relationship uh, with those people.
0: And uh, in the last, you know, almost ten years of of doing this line of work, are there trends that you see? <clears throat> Whether it's uh, movements in the law or in terms of what poverty looks like.
1: Mm, that's a good question. So. It's been, it's kind of been a little bit of a roller coaster as far as trends because, as I'm sure you know, and maybe when you spoke with Ira or other folks, um, there was kind of this hope for this reform in consumer law that was coming when director Codre was on the CFPB and the CFPB got established and was a thing and the enforcement actions and the rules. And then there's been a date decline, you know, with the current administration and um, some of the proposed regulations from, um, and legislation from, you know, on the federal level. Um, so it's been like, it kind of, you know, yay, yay, yay. Right. And then also Supreme court decisions as well. There's been some good ones and some bad ones, and, you know, spokio was a big one that affected everyone's practice and um you know i think that it's it it, you know so that kind of on the legal side of being a warrior and doing that work those have been some trends right but as far as like the landscape and poverty and what it looks like and challenges um you know i think that one of the 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 cool things that I've, I'm so fortunate that I've gotten to be a part of is, you know, this area of what we call coerced debt, right? So mm-hmm. it's that intersection between, um, you know, violence in an intermittent partner relationship and economic abuse and, you know, how we can understand it and try to remedy it. So it's, it's something that, you know, as you probably have seen in the media, kind of the Me Too movement, the, like, women's rights, some of these things, like prosecuting sexual assault like it's something that has historically not been done well and so imagine if we don't do it well with physical violence, how are we going to deal with economic violence? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's rare that anyone ever gets prosecuted for economic abuse. I mean, it's not even a crime identity theft is. Um, and so some forms of economic abuse are, but it's very rare that it gets prosecuted, that it's taken seriously. And so that's something that like an emerging trend, obviously, that I saw and why I kind of devoted my, um, you know, time and practice to that. And, the exciting thing is, um, you know, here, I think about this back in 2014-ish, where um, I was doing some research, you kind of 2013, 2014, I started doing, realizing, like, listen, I got to devote some time to fixing this, because um, I was doing it on the family law context, consumer law context, so I was like, there's got to be a way, um, and just did a Google search for, like, there's got to be someone who's done some kind of study on this <laughs> thing, right? And found um, Professor Angela Litwin or Angie Litwin, um, who was here at UT in Austin. And I was like, well, she's here. Let me reach out to her. And she was she was kind of termed the she coined the term coerced and, debt, um, and her and um, Adrian Adams, who is a professor in Michigan, you know, we were, were working together on a study um, on economic abuse and statistics and all of this. And so getting to connect Angie with our community, with the D V community here in Texas, and then even with some of the like NCLC and things like that, like has been so fruitful because she has provided academic expertise. Um and then um our folks have been able to help her with her study and vice versa. And so just seeing kind of the synergy happen and um we're able to start a coalition now on this topic and um there's a bill that has been filed in our state legislature to um, to address the issue of coercion, because obviously if, if, if coercion has happened in the context of identity theft, there's identity theft laws in place. Mm-hmm. But when it happens under coercion or duress, there are no protections in place. Um, and so this bill would seek to actually address that and to provide protections for folks. And so it's really exciting, because if this passes, we're the first state who would do this, and it would enable me to help even more folks. Um, So it's pretty exciting. But um, I know that was a really long-winded way of answering your question about trends. I mean, obviously, this is kind of the trend that I've devoted myself to, but there are so many others um, that that exists. <laughs> there's so much room for people to um, come and do really great and innovative things in this area because, I mean, there is, there's still mortgage foreclosure issues, PACE loans, reverse mortgages, wraparound deeds, um, you know, that's still an area of law. Um, with with just credit reporting itself, you think about how um, how much more in our society it's become important, I mean, think about 10 right. to 20 years ago and what it looks like now and just think about like innovations in tech and cybersecurity and fintech and how that's going to even increase more in the future. Like, if I could, I'd go back and learn how to program and code so I could understand some of this stuff and be like, OK, here's what cryptocurrency and how you could hack right. it and how because I'm sure that, you know, things like Venmo and PayPal and that there, there aren't protections yet in place. Um, mm-hmm. like there are for credit cards and bank accounts. And so, you know, there's definitely some some kind of Wild West areas for this practice.
0: I, I, look, I find it inspiring how big you think, right? I mean, you ran down this huge list, and that could be overwhelming, but uh, you have this energy of like, no, we're, we're just going to take it on one piece at a time and create change, and I, I appreciate that and find that inspiring. I, I hope that Texas law gets implemented because yeah being the first in the in the country but coming out of Texas you're one of the largest markets and it'll have a big impact nationwide in other states following I would think
1: that's the hope
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean on the one hand it's, it's you know I talk about it I'm excited about it and I've been involved with it um, outside of my job because I'm not allowed to do any of this work um, you know as being LSC funded so it's like personal time that I devote to it um, but it's it's super exciting I mean especially because it's one of the, the ways where it's a direct impact on our clients um, and, and like you said if, if obviously all goes well here then you know, it can have an impact to other states
0: well I, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me today you just have such a unique <laughs> practice and a, a large reach coming out of there uh, and it's, it's great to have you on
1: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. As you can tell, I love talking about this. And so um, it was truly my honor to do it.
0: All right. We'll follow up again once the uh, Texas law gets passed.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs)
0: You're so So, Carla, so following our our conversation, uh, we were talking a little bit more and I, you know, I I had forgotten to ask this. And uh, basically, here's the question. I mean, you're on the border. You're in Texas. Obviously, everything going on immigration-wise is a hot topic right now. And I was just thinking how there has to be a lot of circumstances where you have people who debate whether or not to come forward because of uh, financial fraud or, or some other hardship that they're facing but they or even domestic violence, but they're nervous to do so because of the way that it may impact their immigration status. And I was curious how you juggle that and how often you end up seeing that.
1: Yes. So we definitely see it quite a bit and it is a consideration now in a way that it wasn't a couple of years ago um, because we have had a couple of clients who, though they qualify for citizenship because they were married to a U.S. citizen or um, or a victim of of violence and would qualify for a U visa, um, they you know some of them don't know that right but they do so they um are either applying for a protective order or something like that and so they should have some kind of status but the abuser kind of awarded it over them often said if you call the police if you report if you do this they will you'll get supported um and so it is a very real consideration as i had uh, mentioned to you off um the recording i currently have a client who um did not have status and was um sexually assaulted by somebody who was also selling her property, um, real property. And so he defrauded her, not only, like, took $3,000 from her um, and and never gave it back. When he wrote her the check for it, it was a hot check and it bounced. Um, But then also kind of threatened her while the sexual assault was happening, saying, if you yell, if you scream out, if you report, you know you will be deported, right? So, um, but she has as a result of the violence the ability to get um uh status and so we were holding off on filing suit against him until um you know her immigration situation was resolved until an application was submitted so now if he makes good on the threat she's protected um but it does it is something that happens i mean i have a lot of clients even um you know from a couple of years back that were when the the immigration wasn't as tough as it is now, but we're still, you know, like one client who, um, was from Russian backgrounds and came, um, she's Russian, but I'm not sure. I can't remember if she came from the Ukraine or from Russia, but her spouse also, she, you know, he, I think petitioned for her. It wasn't complete, but she didn't know anything about our financial industry, um, or credit or how that works because of, um, You know, not being native to our country. And so he abused that knowledge and he abused it and took out tons of debt. I think like $60,000 worth of debt in her name without her knowledge or permission um, because of it. And then, of course, like it's a small community that they all find refuge, a Russian community. And so she's like, if I come out, like, I don't even know what my immigration status is. I don't know, I mean, she had status, she she actually was citizen, she didn't know. Um, I, like, you know, I don't. we're going to be with the same people and the same community and they'll find out. And then also, so it's just, it's so tied, all of it is tied. Um, You know, economic security, poverty, being deported, going to a country you've, like, maybe haven't been to in 40 years or you were born here but don't have, um, aren't sure about your status. I mean, just yes, it is something that we see all the time. And have to, another factor
0: to consider unreal, thank you for sharing that and uh, thanks again for all your time
1: yep, thank you